This is Africa Digest. Look at your latest news this hour. Around 60 migrants are missing and are presumed drowned after their boat sank off the coast of Guinea-Bissau in West Africa. Guinean Coast Guard spotted the boat in a difficulty of offshore but were not able to deploy a boat in response. Authorities say wreckage has since been found but no bodies have been recovered. Immigration authorities in neighboring Gambia say a number of migrant boats trying to reach the Canary Island have been apprehended off the coast this year. The authorities in South Sudan have announced that they will not allow the establishment of a hybrid court to try people alleged to have committed crimes against humanity during five years of ethnic fighting in the country. The AU, the UN and the three countries have been at the forefront of diplomatic push for peace to prevail in Africa's newest nation. The push for the establishment of the court came from the United Nations, the African Union, the United States, United Kingdom and Norway. Addressing local and international journalists in Juba, Makwey announced that his government does not support the setting up of the hybrid court. The hybrid court is an instrument that they want to use against the people of South Sudan and especially the leadership of South Sudan. They want to use it in the sense that because the, 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 the agreement gives the hybrid court the right to indict anybody at any time. Once you are indicted, you are apprehended to Shiluk Fisijin. Instead of you pressing for the immediate establishment of the hybrid court, why don't you go in for compensation and healing process, for reparation and compensation, and you go in for the reconciliation and healing process? Iran has welcomed an international court of justice ruling in its favor as it seeks to ease the pressure of U.S. President Donald Trump's economic sanctions. Iran argues that the sanctions Washington reinstated after it abandoned the nuclear deal with Tehran violated the 1950s treaty between the two countries. The BBC's Anna Holligan reports. The judges ordered that the United States must remove any impediment to the free exportation of medicines and medical devices, foodstuff and agricultural commodities, and any aviation equipment necessary for safety, and that both nations refrain from any action that would aggravate this dispute or make it harder to resolve. Both nations have ignored orders given by this court in the past. Although its decisions are binding and can't be appealed, the court has no power to enforce them. And lastly, South Africa's humanitarian organisation, Gift of the Givers, will depart for Indonesia this afternoon. They will be accompanied by search and rescue teams with highly specialised equipment, accompanied by a select number of medical personnel. The founder of the organization, MTS Suleiman, says the 25-member mission will offer assistance after a 7.5-magnitude earthquake and tsunami hit the island of Sulawesi on Friday. The death toll is expected to reach thousands. The first team leaves tonight. It's a predominantly a search and rescue team with a medical component. The primary aim of the search and rescue team is to assist the Indonesian government in the search for survivors or those trapped in different parts of the earthquake zone. And at the same time, of course, they would also find bodies 
which is just as important because families need closure. Whilst doing the medical and search and rescue efforts, we will also be supplying to the population in need. They require bottled water, food, fries, canned food, and other items. Channel African News, I'm Onilintzintzi. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's international radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. Welcome to Channel Africa, the African Perspective. We broadcast from Johannesburg in South Africa and our main aim is to provide you with news, views, knowledge and entertainment from Africa to Africans and listeners from around the world. Reporting for Channel Africa in Harare, Zimbabwe, this is Simon Muchemwa. Reporting for Channel Africa, I am Diana Wanyonyi in Mombasa. For Channel Africa, I am Kumbara Munjarere in Johannesburg. Channel Africa, Kinshasa, Jean-Noël Bamweze. Reporting for Channel Africa from Zambia, I am Hilda Kekelwa. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Africa, rise and shine. Imetimu hivyo saa kuminambili kamili magharibi majira ya Afrika mashariki ama saa kuminamoja kamili jioni saa za Afrika ya kati na kusini. Hii ni idhaa ya kiswahili ya Channel Africa inayokujia katika mitabandi kuminasita kilohertz. 17780780 toka Johannesburg Afrika Kusini You still listen to Africa Digest on Channel Africa where we give you news from an African perspective. Good evening. My name is Spumele Lezondi. Your time is 17.06 Central African Time. Let's start with your top stories. The tributes continue to pour in for South Africa's Environmental Affairs Minister. Nene says he lost his job as Finance Minister for not towing the line. South Sudan government says they will not create a hybrid court for war crimes. In economic news, the World Bank has cut its economic growth forecast for sub-Saharan Africa. And in sport, we will have all the Champions League preview matches for tonight with Musibudi Makura. Starting in South Africa, where a higher education minister, Naledi Pando, says the late environmental affairs minister, Edna Molewa, contributed immensely to the well-being and sustainability of the country's biodiversity. Pando paid a tribute to Molewa in her keynote address at an official memorial service at the Twane Events Centre in Pretoria. I wish to express our deepest sympathy and condolences to the family, staff, and friends of Minister Molewa. I know she will be missed, and we will always remember her fondly. It is trite to say none of us imagined we would be in this place for such an occasion. When we were with Minister Molewa in China, just three weeks ago. Losses such as this one are beyond comprehension and beyond questioning. We have lost a warrior woman 
of the people in the prime of her life. During the state visit to China and the FOCAC meeting, Comrade Edna was jovial, elegant, engaged, and very happy, talking to each one of us in the delegation and taking lots of photographs. As we imagine how to celebrate her, our thoughts must surely turn to our year-long commemoration of our two great leaders, Mama Sisulu and Mr. Mandela. These were South African leaders, African leaders, and global pace setters. Mrs. Albertina Sisulu was a woman of indomitable will, courageous, bold, nurturing, consistent, and determined when tough action was called for. She is also remembered as warm and loving and as able to outline a strategic roadmap for any task of struggle. Ethical, frank, and unafraid to express her viewpoints. We also celebrate Mr. Nelson Mandela, our great icon, a man of the people, always looking to the greater good, unlimited by circumstances, refusing to allow a decline in values and principles, even in the face of the most extreme provocation and repression. The contribution and life of Comrade Edna Molewa mirrors the worthy attributes of these remarkable leaders. That's South Africa's Finance Minister, rather that's South Africa's Education Minister, Naledi Pando, paying tribute to the late Environmental Affairs Minister, Edna Mulewa. Now coming to Finance Minister Ntlantlanene, who says he believes a former President, Jacob Zuma, was upset with him for not signing a letter in 2015 that would have committed South Africa to a nuclear deal with Russia. He was giving evidence at the state capture inquiry in Parktown in Johannesburg. Nene says the first phase of the deal would have come to around 250 billion rand and the whole deal could have exceeded the 1 trillion rand mark. He says his refusal to sign the nuclear deal was not out of arrogance or insubordination but to ensure that there was secure transparent management of the country's finances. Look, I stood my ground because I knew it was the, uh, it was correct for me not to uh, append my signature if the due processes had not been followed. My colleagues, with respect, failed to understand the implications of my signature on the document. That is, concurrence in my capacity as Minister of Finance to commitments which would have been binding on the South African government. And as the Minister of Finance, I was responsible for ensuring the secure, accountable, transparent, sound, effective and efficient management of the country's public finances, sovereign debt and the economy at large. Section 66 of the Public Finance Management Act provides that only the Minister of Finance, as I said earlier, may enter into a transaction that binds or may bind the National Revenue Fund, uh, that is the fiscus, to any future financial commitment. Look, we had uh, publicly said that um, 
as it forms part of the energy mix, and uh, if we proceed with it, it must be done at, uh, at a pace and cost that would be affordable to the country. That was our clear line. And was that the position at the time? Was, were you in a position to make such a decision at the time? Not with, uh, without the uh, information uh, that would assist us to make up. Uh, and with hindsight, with what knowledge one has now um, of the size and implications of such a deal, what would your comment be about the wisdom of having committed the government to such a project at that stage? I still believe it wouldn't have been a wise idea. It wouldn't have been uh, prudent. Uh, may I just go back and take you back uh, uh, again to that paragraph 76? It, it is something quite important in the context of the fact that you were subsequently removed from the position of minister, that uh, you were accused in effect of insubordination, and you say not only by the president but by some of your colleagues as well. Now, do you recall what the president may have said what words or tone he must, he may have used that made you t take the view that he was in effect accusing you of insubordination. He was obviously very upset and uh, he felt it was unacceptable that, uh, um, you know, uh, cabinet had given instructions, this has not been carried out and um, I, I have not done what I was supposed uh, to do. Even though I had given my reason for being unable to do that because of the unavailability of the relevant information that would assist me uh, and the department in, in making that decision. What I, what I found strange was the lack of appreciation of um, the work that needed to be done and the fact that it was almost like it is only the Minister of Finance who has not discharged his responsibility and yet the relevant information that was supposed to come from the Department of Energy had not come forth. Mm. But the Department of Energy was not under the same uh, uh, attack and pressure mm. uh, to, to provide such. It was almost like we, it's only National Treasury or the Minister of Finance that is standing in the way. That is South Africa's Finance Minister Ntlantlanene appearing before the state's capture inquiry in Parktown in Johannesburg. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it's one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. with repeats on Sundays between 10 and 11 as well as on Monday morning between 3 and 4 Central African Time. 1000 African Voices with me, Awurengwi C on Channel Africa, the voice of the African Renaissance from an African perspective. 
Your time is 17.16 Central African Time right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa as we continue to give you news from an African perspective. Let's go to South Sudan now where authorities in the Horn of Africa country have announced that they will not allow the establishment of a hybrid court to try people alleged to have committed crimes against humanity during five years of ethnic fighting in the country. The push for the establishment of the court came from the United Nations, the African Union, the United States, the United Kingdom and Norway. The AU, the UN and the three countries have been at the forefront of diplomatic push for peace to prevail in Africa's newest nation. Their push on financial support resulted in the signing of a new peace by President Salva Kiir and his principal political and military rival, Riyak Bashar. Here's James Shemanyula. As the people of South Sudan and the international community eagerly wait for the establishment of a government of national unity, in conformity with the new peace agreement that was signed in the Ethiopian capital Addis Ababa, a surprise announcement has been made by the Juba authorities through the uh, information minister Michael McQuay. Addressing local and international journalists in Juba, McQuay announced that his government does not support the setting up of a hybrid court to try perpetrators of crimes committed during five years of fighting in the country. This is how Michael McQuay described the hybrid court. The hybrid court is an instrument that they want to use against the people of South Sudan, and especially the leadership of South Sudan. They want to use it in the sense that because uh, uh, the, the, the agreement gives the hybrid court the right to indict anybody at any time. Once you are indicted, you are apprehended to Shiluk decision. Instead of you pressing for the immediate establishment of the hybrid court, why don't you go in for compensation and healing process, for reparation and compensation, and you go in for the reconciliation and healing process? By saying they, McQuay meant the international forces pushing for the establishment of the hybrid court. However, McQuay is aware that the international forces will provide money for the establishment of the hybrid court. He poses a rhetorical question to the money providers. Why don't you use this money for peace, bring peace first, and thereafter make people accountable? But when you talk of accountability, you are putting the card before the horse. South Sudan Information Minister Michael McQuay, commenting on McQuay's remarks, one of South Sudan's prominent activists, Jackie Naswa, emphasized that justice precedes the atmosphere of peace and not the other way around. Peace first and justice later shouldn't come now after the peace is signed because by virtue that chapter 5 is part of the peace agreement and then it has to be implemented as it's in the agreement. Unless if someone is saying like they have reservations and then those reservations should have avoided chapter 5 and the hybrid court. From what citizens are calling for, they are calling for end to impunity. If there is a thinking that probably a hybrid court is foreign, that is misplaced. Because even if you are found to have committed those crimes, you still go to the normal court processes where you are given due process and you are given fair trial where you even have to defend yourself. James Okuk, an independent expert on the political, social and the military issues in South Sudan, asserts that the hybrid court should be formed now and not after the establishment of a new government of national unity. When the government is formed, 
this is where we will have the headache of the hybrid court of South Sudan. And you will not do it away because it is part of the agreement. It is almost half of a chapter five of the agreement. So that's what will happen. And the United States Ambassador to South Sudan, Thomas Hushek, has added his voice to the issue of establishing a hybrid court in the country. Hushek stresses that the establishment of the court is clearly stipulated in the new peace pact. One of the chapters of that peace agreement, of course, includes the establishment of African Union hybrid court. So far, the government of South Sudan has withheld its approval for that, and we really encourage that to be finalized and put in place. That was Thomas Hushek, the United States Ambassador to South Sudan. While the international community waits for the authorities in Ijoba to possibly reverse their refusal to set up a hybrid court, the following points must be borne in mind. It is ripe time for people that committed crimes against humanity to be tried by the legal institution to be known as African Union South Sudan Hybrid Court. The crimes include ethnic cleansing, murder, sexual violence, as well as recruitment and use of child soldiers by the country's national army and fighters loyal to rebel leader Riek Machar. Reporting for Channel Africa, this is James Shimanyula. Namibia's President Hage Gengob has called for a change to the country's constitution to allow the government to expropriate land and redistribute it to the majority black population. Addressing the land conference currently underway in the capital, Vinduk, Gengob said the willing buyer-willing seller principle has not delivered results and careful consideration should be given to expropriation. Today is day three of the conference, which is expected to end on Friday. Namibia, which was ruled by colonial Germany and then apartheid South Africa until 1990 has large swathes of agricultural land as well as a major diamond and platinum mining industries. Figures issued by the Namibian Statistics Agency last month showed that white Namibians owned 70% of agricultural land and black people only 16%. Channel Africa spoke to Kavena Hambira, a Namibian civil society activist, about the key highlights of the conference. The, national, the second national land conference kicked off uh, on Monday, the 1st of October, and, uh, and numerous numerous activities that have taken place over the last three days. Um, for the most part, we've witnessed quite a lot of uh, uh, speakers, uh, and all of these speakers, namely from uh, government stakeholders to civil society, um, have underscored the importance of addressing the land question. So um, there's definitely uh, a, a sense that the, the second land conference has to address um, the issues at hand. Um, those issues in particular that are getting the most inter- uh, attention from the speakers um, relate to, of course, uh, ancestral uh, land claims, um, which has been, I think, the most controversial topic so far, expropriation of agricultural commercial land uh, in the public interest, um, but also this idea of urban land reform and, 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 and resettlement with respect to developing a criteria, uh, criteria and, and how that might look like. Has the proposal been made at the conference to expropriate land without compensation, or are Namibians only interested in expropriation with compensation? Um, I think a number of speakers have indicated uh, the need to uh, maintain and uphold um, Chapter 3 of the Constitution, um, which in in Namibia is is entrenched and therefore unamendable. Um, Therefore, 
Um, it talks about appropriating land with just and fair compensation. So the conversation right now um, is more uh, uh, with respect to uh, expropriating land with compensation. Um, however, uh, again, this, this has not been decided. This is not conclusive. Um, this is a lot of what we're hearing from from the speakers. Um, it's really the, the hard work will really take place during the working, the different thematic working groups, and and those sessions are taking place um, as we speak. President Gengo has also appealed uh, to those shunning the conference to join the proceedings uh, because several traditional authorities and non-governmental bodies uh, have withdrawn from the conference, citing a myriad of reasons. Uh, do we know if uh, those who were boycotting the conference have uh, joined the proceedings? Those allegations were made prior to the, uh, the conference and many traditional uh, leaders, many uh, opposition parties and some members of civil society have decided to boycott uh, on the basis that the outcome is predetermined. But um, I think many trust in the president. I think the president uh, did a really good job at uh, addressing these allegations in the beginning of the conference and he, he made it clear that it was definitely not the case. The idea um, that um, our colleagues, some of our colleagues who are specifically in civil society um, have been acting as, as repertoires. Uh, the, the idea that they, they are there at the moment giving their input and monitoring the, 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 the process from the beginning to the end uh, is, is, is really uh, to ensure that the will of the people is respected. And I think there is trust uh, in the fact that some of these thematic working groups are intersectional um, and have different stakeholders representing different interests within society um, to make these decisions. Um, I think, uh, you know, there the is a level of trust um, that the, the current situation is independent, it's transparent, and, and whatever decision comes out of, um, out of the, the, the conference and these thematic working groups is the will uh, of the people. That is Kavana Hambira, a member of Namibian Civil Society, on the line from Vinduk in Namibia in conversation there with uh, Kumbero Monjarere. It is 17.26 in traffic and time right here on Africa Digest. And now the United States First Lady Milena Trump kicked off her African tour in Ghana where she visited the neonatal intensive care unit at the Greater Accra Regional Hospital and also spoke about issues such as cyberbullying. The U.S. week-long tour is the longest solo international trip she has made without the U.S. President Donald Trump. very difficult to know whether this is um, something she's doing for her own personal uh, interests and in the relationship with Donald Trump or that it's linked in some ways to U.S. policy and the impact that it'll have is not likely to be very great in my mind. This is her first trip ever to Africa. Her husband has never been here to my knowledge, uh, either before the presidency and certainly not since he's become president. And it's a goodwill trip. It's a humanitarian trip. She's not dealing at all with any policy issues. She's dealing with things like uh, health and, and children. But it does relate to policy because she's going to be going to AID-sponsored projects, and her husband has talked about cutting the budget of AID. So in that sense, I don't think it can hurt. I think it may actually help a little bit. Now, she has not received as much attention as her predecessor, Michelle Obama, who visited South Africa and Botswana when her husband was president. What do you read into this, Prof? 
Well, if you look at the uh, numbers of uh, international global opinion, including in Africa, between the Obama presidency and the Trump presidency, it's really a huge gap. Uh, you know, 60, 70 percent more favorable to Obama being a responsible leader than Donald Trump. And in my view, those those numbers are reflective of the reality. I mean, Trump has showed no interest, concern, or a knowledge of Africa, whereas uh, Obama was a very serious uh, student of African and world affairs. And as we all know from his recent uh, uh, Mandela's address down here in South Africa, his first address of his post-presidency, uh, he considers uh, himself to be very much a protege student of Nelson Mandela and follows Africa closely. So it's very, very different. And Michelle Obama uh, is a, an extraordinarily talented and accomplished woman. I don't think millennial Trump is in any sense in that league in terms of her international experience, but I don't have any views one way or another on her. It's her husband that drives me crazy. Just uh, finally, Prof, uh, digressing from a Melania Trump trip. Earlier this weekend, it has emerged uh, that Lana Max, an American fashion designer who was born in East London, has actually been nominated as uh, the United States Ambassador to South Africa. Uh, President Ramaphosa, we understand, is uh, considering her nomination. What was your reaction when you heard of Lana Max's nomination as uh, the possible U.S. Ambassador? to South Africa? Well, on one level, I'm not surprised. She is very much in the Trump mode. They were socialites together in uh, Palm Beach, Florida. She is a self-promoter. She is bo- she was born in East London, as you know, and immigrated very young in age. No political experience or background or interests, but has been successful in promoting her handbags. I think it's a little insulting to South Africa, but I don't think that was the intent. I think Trump is just rewarding of a, a, a friend. Uh, I had heard that a very experienced Africa hand, that Tony Carroll, had done the leading candidate for a couple of years, but then no one ever contacted him, and then Trump must have personally interceded to take care of someone who we know socially, I guess. Um, but when I think of, of what would have happened had Hillary Clinton been president, she would have immediately named Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who is an outstanding Foreign Service officer, former Ambassador, Assistant Secretary of State. That just shows you the gap between um, the way in which um, the, 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 the presidential leadership makes a difference and, and uh Frankly, uh, Hillary Clinton would have been much better for Africa-U.S. relations than Donald Trump, but that's belaboring the obvious. All right, it's John Strimlau on Ellen Tinti. has the news headlines. Around 60 migrants are missing and are presumed drowned after their boat sank off the coast of Guinea-Bissau in West Africa. Authorities in South Sudan announced that they will not allow the establishment of a hybrid court to try people alleged to have committed crimes against humanity. And the government of Burundi still maintains the suspension for three months of all activities of international non-governmental organizations working in Burundi. Channel Africa News. I am Welcome.
Welcome to Change Your Game on Channel Africa, the African perspective. We are coming to you from Johannesburg, right here in South Africa. I'm Asanda Beda, your host. Change Your Game, the program that promotes open discussion and social dialogue as we highlight real issues in the African entrepreneurship ecosystem. Trevor Mumba now joins us in studio to talk about his entrepreneurial and personal journey. Welcome to Change Your Game, Trevor. Thank you so much. Um, it's an honor to be here. Palesa Mukubong, who's a designer. Welcome, Palesa, to Change Your Game. Thank you. Your role at the fourth annual Fashion Without Borders event? I just know that I need to arrive and, and, <laughs> okay. and do my part and do it really, really well. Yeah. 17.32 Central African time right here on Africa Digest. And now fuel prices are going to be a pain for South Africans, whether traveling by private transport or public transport. The latest hike will see the price of petrol increasing by 99 cents for 93 octane and by one rand for 95 in the Southern African country. Now, prices will officially go up at midnight. Most South Africans use minibus taxis to travel. To talk to us more on this, we're now joined on the line by a spokesperson at the South African National Taxi Association, Tabisho Rather Mulilegwa. Hello, and thank you very much for joining us. Uh, thank you very much, and uh, good uh, evening to your listeners. Uh, and now, are we likely going to see yeah, taxi fare going up? We, we, well, yes, as a matter of fact, but this has been effected uh, since uh, August um, uh, the 1st. Um, so uh, Santaco made that announcement at the time, uh, between that time and probably around November. Uh, our structures countrywide would be affecting those, uh, those increases. Uh, we have uh, determined them. Uh, as uh, between one rand and uh, 20 rand for local operations and between one rand and uh, 50 rand uh, for long-distance operations, depending on uh, some of the long-distance operations where, you know, they may have to affect with more than, more than 50 rand. Um, there have been a number of uh, fuel price increases this year. How have they affected you and have you increased um, the price of taxes in the past this year at all? We haven't, but let alone the number of uh, consistent increases this year. When you look around uh, August, let's say July, when you look around July last year and compare the increase pattern from that time to this year, you would realize that the petrol price has increased with about 130% already. So these increases are only adding bird, are only adding the burden to the operational cost of, of the taxi industry, and this is why you know uh, we had to uh, call a special uh, management council meeting, which is comprised of uh, representatives countrywide to make this determination. And I must indicate, as a result of uh, these uh, you know petrol price hikes that are consistent, uh, we we have affected these increases as of uh, August until June next year, where we would again, uh, uh, you know, evaluate whether another increase is necessary. Mm. Um, and so uh, you can then assure commuters that if there is another increase, let's say in the next couple of months, they are not going to pay to be paying any much more for catching taxis. Yes, well, with the increase that have been taking place so far, yes, they can be, uh, you know, rest assured that even if there are price increases, I mean, petrol price increase in now and December. You know, these increases would be applicable until such time in June when 
we would do another, you know, review uh, to to effect, uh, you know, uh, another increase. All right. And uh, do you think there's some sort of assistance that you can get in order for you not to increase uh, prices? Look, uh, there was a by, you know, government as represented by the state president that, uh, you know, there would be an intervention program to assist manage fuel. Uh, and you contrast that with the report that uh, there's little that we really can do to manage petrol price fluctuations and increases, you know, when you take the dollar rent exchange into account. But when you look at countries like, uh, you know, uh, uh, Hong Kong, for instance, there has been, uh, you know, petrol prices have been increased largely for private car owners to ensure that people are moved into public transport pass, uh, public transport space. And and you look at Venezuela where petrol is a, is a birthright, well, because of their manufacturers. But the reason I'm trying to raise these issues is precisely because one way or the other, you need to prioritize, you know, uh, your commitment as government to uh, to assist those, uh, you know, uh, you know institutions that are providing an essential service like the taxi industry in South Africa, where we commute about 60.68.8% of, of, the, of the commuting public. So we have not received any direct, you know, intervention as government, as, 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 as a industry. We are yet to meet with the state president following the request that we have made that, uh, you know, we need to be relieved of the burden that we are carrying. Remember, we're not even charging market-related prices. Uh, and, and this is not making the, the situation of the owner or the taxi owner any better. All right. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Tabashu Mulilekwa, there is the spokesperson at the South African National Taxi Association. Attention to our listeners. The first hour of Africa Digest will not be broadcast on Channel 802 on the DSTV audio bouquet. The 1700-hours show will only be found on shortwave and online on www.channelafrica.co.za. Please note that this only applies to the 1700-hours Central African Time show. The 1900-hour Central African Time program will be back on all the platforms. Channel Africa, giving you an African perspective. Seventeen thirty-eight Central African Time, right here on Africa Digest on Channel Africa, where we give you news from an African perspective. My name is Spomela Lezondi, and we are coming to you live from Johannesburg. Now, the Kenyan government has taken over the responsibility of providing lunches to the one point six million school children in the country from the World Food Programme. Since the nineteen eighties, the school meals have been a joint responsibility of the WFP and the Ministry of Education. The government has not set aside about a 24 million US dollars, which will directly finance the program. For more on this, we're now joined on the line by Martin Karimi, who's the spokesperson at the World Food Program in Kenya. Hello, and thank you very much for joining us, Martin. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you, sir. Uh, what led to this? What led to this? What led to the government saying that they'll be taking over all responsibilities from the WFP um, for the school feeding program? So, 
This has been a very gradual uh, process uh, together. We're working with uh, with the Ministry of Education in the country um, to hand over this uh, school meals program uh, to the government, and uh, it is a very it, it, it's a prom- it's a moment for us as as the world food for us to be proud of. It is a moment that uh, we have been looking forward to. Um, we started uh, as the World Food Program together with uh, with the Minister of Education, feeding children until the, uh, in the 1980s. Uh, and now today, uh, formally the government has taken over uh, the rule of feeding the children uh, in schools, uh, in the arid and semi-arid children, uh, the semi-arid um, uh, areas. We are talking about about uh, the government is going to be feeding about two million children already now, uh, where they are being supported by the welfare program. Mm. Um, the WFP has been doing this since 1980. Has it been a smooth transition? Um, and have you heard whether the Kenyan government has enough money to take over this responsibility? The government has been very, very committed to this process of uh, taking over the school meals. Um, as we speak right now, uh, this current financial year, uh, the government has provided about uh, uh, two, uh, $4 billion Kenya shillings with about uh, 24 million, almost 24 million uh, US dollars to school feeding in the country. So the government has shown lots of, lots of interest and uh, they are really interested in taking over this this program. Um, the director to the basic education uh, education uh, uh, in this country has said that uh, the responsibility for feeding the children belongs to the government of this country. Um, so they are very, very, very well. Uh, 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 interested in taking over this program as a government, and we are really, really proud of this particular moment uh, that this government is doing that. Okay, maybe if you can briefly tell us about um, uh, some of the challenges uh, that you guys have had in the past uh, with this program. Are all schools easy to within easy reach, for example? Well, it, it is a it, it, it's a unique program in in the country. I must say that um, the speaking of the Kenyan first of all, the, the the fact that uh, meals are provided in schools uh, they attract children uh, to school. So the school meals have been a very very key uh, element in increasing uh, not just uh, the, the people people coming to school, you have more children coming to school, you have more children getting an education, retention is higher with females, and the government has recognized this as as a very element as a key element to to that conversation. So we are this as a very um, it's, it's a monumental uh, it, 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 it for this country, it is monumental. It, it's been a very key milestone that the government now is taking this over, and the government wants to provide this uh, meal to provide to, to make sure that kids are coming to school, kids 
parties anymore. We are looking at uh, a building, a nation that is in the future. We're looking at uh, building uh, people that are uh, a bit more more stable, and in the in in the future, the government is building at uh, the government is uh, looking at uh, giving people mm. this country. Yeah, um, we. Um, yeah, Martin, with this responsibility now taken away, what will your responsibilities be in Kenya now as the World Food Program? So the World Food Program is not leaving the school meals program. It's not uh, leaving the government alone. So we we see in our mandate right now in the country, the WFP is going to be more involved in youth giving skill and building uh, capacity of the Ministry of Education, the Ministry, uh, government officials, the county government. We are going to be building the capacity of these ministries and these departments to be able to provide more uh, support to the, the, the ministry program. So the WFP is now focusing on capacity building. Kenya now, right now, has a, a, a devolved system uh, when it comes to government. So we have a national government and yeah. we have the county government. The WFP is supporting these two yeah. levels of government to be able to provide support to this, uh, this sort of business uh, uh, like government now. Martin Karimi, thank you very much. Martin Karimi there is the spokesperson at the World Food Program in Kenya. 17.45 Central African Time. Here's Rosanna Matabula with your economic news. Good evening. Uh, thanks, as Pumalele. The World Bank has cut its economic growth forecast for sub-Saharan Africa this year to 2.7% from an earlier forecast of 3.1%, mainly because of slower-than-expected growth in the continent's bigger economies. The region, which has posted a fairly fast average growth rate in the years leading up to 2015, suffered a loss of momentum in economic output after commodity prices crashed in 2015-2016. In April, the World Bank had predicted that the recovery would gather pace this year with average growth expected at 3.1%, up from 2.3% last year. And South Africa's finance minister, Tlantlanene, says he refused to sign the guarantee for the nuclear build program because it would have been a lasting, have a lasting uh, financial implications for the country for decades. Nene gave testimony at the State Capture Commission of Inquiry in Johannesburg. He says it didn't seem wise to approve such a commitment in the absence of proposed financial model and feasibility study. The nuclear build program was estimated to cost over 100 billion US dollars. He says he was criticized by former President Jacob Zuma and other colleagues for refusing to approve the nuclear build program. I was accused of insubordination not only by the president but by some of my colleagues. Were those words directly used? Pardon? The word insubordination was that. Is that a direct uh, quote? Not or? directly, but uh, that it was inferred. Were, were it to that effect? 
Yes. And I recall that uh, the attitude of some of my colleagues also, particularly the Minister of International Relations, Minister Maitin Kwanima Shabane, and the Minister of State Security, Minister David Mashobo, uh, was, the attitude was very hostile and they actually uh, wanted me to sign. Hamoni Gold uh, signed a three-year wage agreement with uh, South Africa's National Union of Mine Workers, NUM, and two other unions. Hamoni says the deal... Uh, 48 US dollars per month pay hike in the first year for the lowest paid underground workers. This is an increase of about 9%. Similar percentage increases follow in the next two years. NUM last month hiked, uh, inked a three-year wage deal with Anglo Gold Shanti that saw a 12% pay hike for entry-level ground workers. And head of Safaricom's innovation lab, Kamal Patachaya, has left Kenya's biggest telecoms company less than a year and a half after he joined. The former long-serving IBM executive has last month after leading Safaricom's Alpha Innovation Unit since April 2017 left the company. Patachaya says he had left to focus on the technology startup which involves the education sector. He presided over the piloting of a social messaging app that will link uh, to its widely used mobile money platform, Pesa, in an attempt uh, to move uh, the company into the application business. And Malawians, especially energy users and consumers of various goods and services, should brace themselves for tough times as the electricity tariffs have gone up by 32%, despite common power blackouts. This according to the Malawi Energy Regulatory Authority. Business person Frederick Changaya has this suggestion to the authorities. Like me and other private companies would have done step-down transformers all over the country. Then the whole country is electrified. Then look at the supply. And again, what else, what other power supply sources do we have in the country that we can use to generate more capacity for the country? Because like I said, power is everything. Malawi is discovering minerals. Financial indicators, uh, the dollar trading at 10.42, Botswana Pula, 12.19, Zambia and Guacha, BRICS currencies. We've got the dollar uh, weakening against the Brazilian Real at 3.97 and also at 6.5.26 Russian ruble, 73.35 Indian rupee, 6.88 Chinese yuan, but strengthening against the South African rand at 14 rand, 31 cents per dollar. European currencies, it's at uh, 76 pence to the British pound and 86 cents against the euro. Commodities, gold, $1,207. Platinum, $832 per fine ounce. Brent crude oil has gone up to $84.85 per barrel. That's how it's looking. Thanks for Sunday Sports News with Musibudi Makura.
Good evening, sports fans, and starting off with Champions League news, Liverpool manager Joran Klopp has described the pre-match praise he received from Napoli boss Carlo Ancelotti as tactics before the teams play each other in their Champions League match tonight. Liverpool have carried their fine domestic form into Europe and beat Paris Saint-Germain 3-2 in their Group C opener. Now, Ancelotti held last year's finalist as one of the strongest teams in Europe in his news conference, but Klopp suggested that the Italian was playing mind games. So we can start with that. I like Carlo Ancelotti. I respect him a lot and he's a fantastic guy, he was a world-class player, a world-class manager. And how we in Germany say he's obviously a smart fox, giving all these very positive things about us and um, then, then saying all these nice things about me <laughs> before a game. Um, it's nice, actually, but it's, it's tactics. Starts already. Carlo is so long in the business eh, and he wants to... Um, um, we uh, try to bring the very nice, the nice fella out of me. Let me say it like this, and I'm here to be ready for a, a real battle and stuff like that. So I don't. Well, the German coach also praised Ancelotti's side, saying it is an organized team with quality in all departments and honestly admitted he does not see a gap between the two teams. Liverpool thrashed Napoli 5-0 in a pre-season friendly match back in August and now aims at the top of Group C after Napoli's goalless draw in their opener against Red Star Belgrade. But he's not the only really good player in that team, but he is one of the, one of the really good ones, so that uh, makes it so difficult. Um, Napoli is really good organized, um, quality in all departments, defense, midfield, offense, speed, good in dribbling, technical-wise really strong, and that makes it a, a really good football team. It helps. I don't see a gap between Napoli and us, to be honest, but um, if there would be a gap, it's always, it helps. If you... The mix-up is good between the football you play and the atmosphere in the stadium, then it's always a benefit. That's how it is, 100%. And um, I believe in that and I enjoy that, actually. While in the other matches taking place across Europe tonight, Tottenham Hotspur host Barcelona, PSV and Hoven take on Inter Milan, Borussia Dortmund welcome Monaco, Lokomotiv Moscow host Schalke, FC Porto welcome Galatasaray, Red Star Belgrade travel to Paris Saint-Germain, while Atletico Madrid play host to Club Brugge. Well, back home, there is EPSA Premiership action tonight. Chipa United will take on Free State Stars in their EPSA Premiership match at the Nelson Mandela Bay Stadium in Port Elizabeth. Bloemfontein Celtic Coast defending champions Mamelodi Sundowns. Baroka FC travel to Toyando Stadium to face Black Leopards, while Orlando Pirates host Golden Arrows. All matches kick off at 7.30pm Central African time. On to t- um, cricket news, rather, Imran Tahir says he's thrilled to be back playing for the Proteus. The 39-year-old had last played at ODI back in February and marked his comeback into the squad with a two for 23 runs on Sunday against Zimbabwe in the first ODI match of the three-match series. Tahir returns with a determined hunger and desire to succeed. Uh, i just been playing cricket, so uh, I wasn't on rest. I went to play in England, uh, I went to play Caribbean, so yeah, I've been playing the game which is very good for me, um, I rather been playing than ha- having a rest, so which is very good and I'm, I'm more than happy, I have no words to come back and put the shirt back on, it's absolute privilege, so yeah, really looking forward for this series, every game. Personally, I don't take any game for granted and uh, like I said, it's um, if you're playing for your country, you have to be up for it and no matter who you're playing against, you just need to win and that's what... Uh, you wear this jersey for, so um, I'm, I'm really up for it. 
And finally, Tennis News favorite Juan Martin Del Potro avoided the fate of third seed Gigro Dimitrov to surge into the quarterfinals of the China Open. The towering Argentine top seed enjoying one of the best seasons of his injury-blighted career dismissed Russia's Karin Kachinov 6-4-7-6 in Beijing to make the finals of an ATP event. For the first time since 2013, the board number four will again be strongly fancied when he faces Filip Kachinovich of Serbia. In the last eight. The Zaya Sports News at the Sawa Stay tuned to Channel Africa for more news from an African perspective. This is Africa Digest. It's 17.56 Central African time. Let us recap our top stories. Tributes continue to pour in for South Africa's Environmental Affairs Minister, Edna Mulewa. Nene says he lost his job as Finance Minister for not towing the line. South Sudan government says they will not create a hybrid court for war crimes. And that wraps up Africa Digest for this hour. For myself, as Puma Lelizondi producer, Ronald Piri, technical producer, Adrian Kenny, and the rest of the team, Thank you very much for listening. You can send your emails to info at channelafrica.co.za. Info at channelafrica.co.za and SMS on plus 27823325905. We're also on channel Africa One on Twitter. We leave you with uh, Habib Konte Hamada with uh, Din Din Wo.
Andira ni moni inunonse onvera kuliko 